Join ResU in thoughtful conversations that will pique your curiosity and expand your mind. ResU's thought leadership and partners will introduce unique ideas and ways that help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. Nurses now have so much respect and so much of a central place on the team. People really do understand that we're very well trained. We often see things going wrong before anyone else does, and that our voice matters. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Tree Scanlon, President of Resurrection University. As always, we strive to bring you content that is interesting. This case is no exception because we have someone whose career has been nothing but unique and interesting. The 2010 earthquake of Haiti ultimately was responsible for the death of 230,000 people, which touched many families there as well as here in the United States. It also touched our next guest, not because he lost a loved one there, but because it impacted him in another way and ultimately was responsible for a new career choice. Ark Shimmick made the decision to leave his career the day of the earthquake and to pursue the career that has led him here today. Arik, welcome to Thinking Out Loud. Thank you very much for having me today. So I referenced Haiti in the introduction. Can you share that story about Haiti and how it led you to thinking about a new career path? Yeah, absolutely. So my pathway through and back into nursing is kind of a circular, windy one. I actually started the process to become a nurse when I was 18 and ended up walking away from it. So The 2010 earthquake in Haiti was really not so much a new career for me. It was a return to what I really should have done Mm. uh, when I was (laughs) young and maybe a little too foolish to focus on school enough. So it was kind of a return that in that moment, I mean, I can tell you exactly where I was here in my office in in the loop. And, you know, it's Tuesday afternoon, like 4.30, 4.45, and I'm just like wrapping up my day and this news breaks and I'm thinking man, I I really wish I could go and help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the thing about nursing is, you know, when your first response is, how do I go help someone? I knew I was in the wrong line of work. You know, So what were you doing at the time? <laughs> Believe it or not, I was in commercial real estate operations. Well, that's the furthest thing from yeah. nursing, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of Excel worksheets and a lot of meetings and conference calls and, you mm-hmm. know, all of those fun things that come with corporate America. And it, it, it was a great job, and I worked with amazing people, but it just ultimately wasn't for me. And so I think that moment, sitting at my desk, watching the video from Haiti, I'm like, I'm done. I'm okay. done. And I left my job three months later. So not to you know get too much into your personal details, mm-hmm. but how old were you at the time you made this decision? It's a great question. You're asking me to do math live. <laughs> okay. So I would have been 31. Okay, so yep. not the traditional age. You said at mm-hmm. 18, you thought you would be a nurse and said, no, mm-hmm. oh, that's not for me. I don't have the, the wherewithal to go through that rigorous program right now. Went and did your commercial real estate stuff for a while. Mm-hmm. And then Haiti hit and you said... I got to do something different. Yeah. And my school's defense, I should say, it was really they that selected me out of the program. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at 18, you know, everybody has issues, right? Exactly. You know, I I was truly enjoying the college experience. We'll just, we'll say that. But, you know, I ended up finishing my first degree in international relations with the mindset that I love to travel and I wanted to go see the world. And I thought, what a better way to go help Americans abroad, for example. Sure. I had the chance to go live in London in for a couple of years and I, I had like this amazing pathway and then life just kind of happened and I found mm-hmm. myself sitting in that corner like okay what do I do now and commercial real estate was booming so 
landed in that job for seven years. And, you know, yeah, at 31, it wasn't exactly where I thought I would be. Sure. Sitting at my desk saying, I'm going to give all this up and go do something completely different because you're right that it really was nowhere near what I do now. But honestly, I couldn't be happier. Oh, great. That's great. So this is your second career. Mm hmm. And I think there's a lot of people out there that probably feel the way you were feeling. Mm -hmm. And not that that something horrific like Haiti has to happen, Mm -hmm. but there's a number of people out there who are in a career and just going along on the treadmill and doing what they have to do to support themselves, their families, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? And can you remember how you felt? Like, was there fear? Was there excitement? You know, when you made that decision to jump from corporate America to going back to school because you quit your job, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. What did you feel? You know, fear is, I I would put that first on the list as well. You know, the fact that you mentioned that first, it's absolutely true. I don't think any change in your life comes without fear. Mm -hmm. Every time you really have to take a step back and say, I'm changing paths or or directions, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be very scary. But I think once I kind of made peace with it, it really was just this sense of calm and thinking, this is such the right thing to do mm-hmm. that I'm no longer really worried about it. And, okay. my, and my fears and my worries became a little bit more about how do I pay for this? You know, <laughs> how do I buy food? <laughs> exactly. You know, all those little things, right? <laughs> you know, like transitioning from an office job to now I was waiting tables and bartending and, mm-hmm. and having to use a different part of my personality and skills and, and learn all kinds of new things. And it's still a little worrisome and I'm not going to lie. Like I'm not going to tell people who are interested in nursing that it's a slam dunk, easy thing to do, No, but nothing that's worth it ever is. Right. And ultimately where I've gone in the last couple of years of being a nurse, it just blows my mind. I never would have had these opportunities if I would have stayed in that cubicle. So you mentioned that your life is very different and Mm -hmm. you're doing things that you never thought you would do. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about after you graduated from Reju, what did you do? What was your first job as a, mm-hmm. as a nurse, and then how has it progressed? Well, ironically, I, <laughs> I I laugh only because the the first day of pediatrics class, I really was not interested. I have to be honest. I I love kids. I love being around kids, but it was never something I thought I could do to see them when they're sick. Sure. That, that's one of the most difficult things. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's really hard. And, you know, kids are never sick because of something they did. It's ne- never something that they deserve. It's right. They're just sick. Mm-hmm. And so I went into pediatrics rotation very kind of like, I'm, I just want to get through this. Yeah. And day one of my rotation at Lurie Children's in the cardiac intensive care unit, I looked at my professor and I said, this is it. I'm wow. never leaving. And I never did. Okay. So first job out of college was actually in the cardiac intensive care unit. And if you want to talk about jumping into a fry pan. Sure. <laughs> that, that surely is it. It was, it was definitely uh, a transition and a process. And, you know, part of it is very emotional, but part of it is very technical. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, a student, I really was drawn to kind of the science behind nursing and the science in healthcare. So it, it made sense and it was an amazing position. But at the end of the day, some of the emotion just got to be a little bit too much. Sure. And so I decided to switch from the ICU setting down to the emergency department. In oh, a little less pace, <clears throat> you know, slower pace, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I wouldn't ever call it a slower pace. <laughs> I, I'm um, totally joking. I know, I know. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's a huge difference in a child who, for example, is waiting for a heart transplant. Yep. Yeah. And might be on your unit for months until that call comes. 
there's a huge difference between that and going to the emergency room where it's a little bit more transactional. It's a little bit like, help, something's wrong, we help you, right. and then hopefully you're better. Right. You know? And so the emotional attachment is a little bit less, and mm-hmm. I, I just felt like maybe that was the right thing for me. Um, and I went down to the ED, and I was just blown away how how great those nurses are, because they really have to be able to handle anything at a moment's notice. Absolutely, yeah. And the minute you're finally set up and doing what you think you need to do, you know, the ambulance alarm goes off, and next <laughs> you're just running to the trauma bay. And yep. so it ultimately was a really cool transition, but... Mm-hmm. I could already tell that, like, man, I just don't know if I'm a good enough nurse to be here in the ED. Oh, wow. And okay. so I was kind of living through some of those emotions and, um, and and learning that field. And I had the chance to travel over to China with our hospital to one of our partner sites. And, I mean, it was one of the coolest things I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And on that trip, I met the leadership of our telemedicine team. Oh, okay. Who, as fate would have it, they were looking for a clinician. And by the end of the trip, it felt like we had known each other for 20 years. And I just laughed and I said, I think this is happening, isn't it? And they just kind of chuckled back. They're like, you do realize that we've been interviewing you on this The whole trip. time, yeah, right? <laughs> on, I was like, well, there we go. So it's even my path into nursing as well as my path in nursing has been very windy. But I yeah. love that because it's just there's so many opportunities and I'm the perfect example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can pick almost anything, right? Mm -hmm. And just go on that path. Before we move on, can you tell us what telehealth is? Well, that is a great question. Um, (laughs) There are about a thousand one definitions out there. So you may have heard terms like telehealth, telemedicine, Mm -hmm. e-health, m-health, connected care, all of those things, right? We're all trying to brand it in our own way. Ultimately, telemedicine or telehealth is just the remote delivery of healthcare and clinical information using technology. So what we're seeing is, especially in the consumer market, you're seeing things like the wearables, like, you know, the watches and the pedometers and the things that help people really track their health a little bit better. In the clinical setting, we're using more of the live provider to provider um, video conferencing as just a way to help assess and treat patients at a distance when someone really just wants a second opinion. Okay. You know, at the end of the day, when you are the only provider in the room, think of how much stress that is to say, like, my decision has to be the right one. Yeah. And I can't, I can't call anyone. I mm-hmm. can't ask, ask someone, what would you do in my shoes? And that's the amazing thing about people who work in really small town, you know, community hospitals or, or settings where they're the only provider. It's like, <laughs> it's you. So yeah. what we're seeing now with telemedicine, especially um, at Lurie Children's, is the ability to really be a resource for people throughout the region who, okay. who just need some guidance, a little bit of help. They want to phone a friend. They want some feedback. And it's been really, really rewarding to watch the level of pediatric health care across the state improve based on the fact that we no longer have to move patients to us, we can start to move our knowledge out to people. Well, that's really cool because, I mean, when families, especially who have children, uh, are dealing with situations that are unique and they live in Springfield, Mm -hmm. for that family to uproot themselves and come to Lurie's is a huge burden. This way, your doctors or your practitioners can actually just get on the the Mm -hmm. video screen with the providers down there and and kind of walk them through how to take care of that patient, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's amazing because when you take a step back and think about it, when a, a child is sick, the entire family is uprooted. Absolutely. 
And in a world where so many of us work in kind of a gig economy or in, let's say, part-time work or something hourly where there are no sick days. Right. So, okay, my child is sick. We're being, you know, medevaced over to St. Louis because there's no pediatric trauma center in the southern half of the state, for example. Well, what am I going to do with my other two kids now that how do they get to school? How am I going to pay for this? Who's going to feed them? Like all of these questions flood through our parents' minds. And on top of it, they're already worried about their child that's ill. So... This is our attempt, and you know it, we've had some really great success stories already, just being able to provide that level of care without making people move. And of course, we're never going to 100% change every child's need to be seen somewhere else. Sure. There's always going to be that case that needs to go to another higher level of care, but so many kids don't need to do that. Yeah. And financially and time-wise and for the family it's really better to keep them in their hometown sure sure they're much more comfortable too in the surrounding that they understand and know too right and think about it if you're mom or dad and your parents live nearby like Mm -hmm. the parents need a support system as much as the children do oh absolutely and so it's it's really a win-win and especially in a in a world where so many healthcare companies and institutions are worried about money you know why would we spend x amount of money to transfer you when you could have received care in the hospital that you mm-hmm. arrived at. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so I think it's obvious to our listeners that you're a male, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's talk about men in nursing, right? Yes. And and you've actually been part of an event we have at the university where we have a panel of men that come mm-hmm. uh, once a year to talk about the pluses, minuses, the things that men are dealing with when you become a nurse. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your experience being a man in nursing? Mm-hmm. Is there any biases that you've come across, parents, families, patients dealing with you differently versus, you know, any of those kinds of things, pros and cons of being a male in nursing? Yeah, no, that's a great question, because I know that is definitely on the minds of a lot of people when they consider nursing. And in my experience, you know, the only time that I really think about it is when someone points it out. I don't feel any different as a nurse. I don't feel that I'm treated any differently. Typically, you know, there's usually going to be one or two nurses that look at you and say, oh, great, you can lift all my patients for me. Oh, yeah. And I just kind of laugh because I'm like, "Uh, no, that's not going to (laughs) happen. But, you know, nursing is a team effort. And of course, you do everything you can. But I think because people need to depend on the nurse next to them, Mm -hmm. it really does break down a lot of those walls. And people just at the end of the day don't really care. If you're good at what you do, people are going to want to work with you. People are going to want to hire you. Mm-hmm. And that's really been my experience so far. There's, there's been a few, um, you know, here and there family stories that I've I've had to deal with. But I think, you know, especially working in the in the field of pediatrics, I totally understand if it's a you know a teenage female patient and maybe mom or dad is a little unwary or mm-hmm. unsure about having you know a male nurse do some of the you know fairly intimate things that nurses need to do for their patients. I totally get it, you know, and we have a great understanding and it's not a problem. We will get someone else or we'll have someone else take care of that task, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay your nurse for the other things. Um, So overall, no, I I don't really feel like me being male versus female has has been an issue. Well, that's great. I mean, because when you think about it, they probably have male physicians or mm-hmm. nurse practitioners or whatever mm-hmm. that are also taking care of them. So I think traditionally nursing has been for you know decades very mm-hmm. female driven. At the university, we actually make a conscious effort in order to get as mm-hmm. many men in nursing because the comfort level of 
patients and their families, people that look like them, is huge, right? I mean, so I can I could see why you being in there mm-hmm. now is is a great help to a lot of those families, especially those mm-hmm. little boys that you're dealing with, right? They can say, I want to be like him. Exactly. No, and that's a great point, too, is, you know, we often forget about the fact that, again, you know, I'm talking from a pediatric mm-hmm. viewpoint, because that's the world that I live in. It's like, a young boy or young man can be just as uncomfortable about their body, oh, yeah. just as uncomfortable and scared about what, you know, what being in a hospital is and what that means. And, you know, having a male nurse, when you have to do things like help someone go to the bathroom or, or change clothes or, you know, dress a wound that's in a kind of a delicate part of the body, you know, we often kind of brush over the fact that little boys get kind of scared by having people sure. they don't know do some of those things. Absolutely. And so... You know, and the other example I like to point out is back when you're looking at some of our veteran population who have been treated by male nurses, either on the field or in a field hospital for decades, for hundreds right. of years. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yep. They're not freaked out by it because guess what? Their nurse was male mm-hmm. in World War II or on the field in Afghanistan. That's it's not different to them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So when you were a student at Reju, you were a student leader. And we see you continuing to be a leader at work and outside of work in various volunteer positions with multiple organizations. Mm -hmm. Can you first tell us about your work with the United Nations when you spoke there last year? Yeah. So I have the incredible opportunity to be involved in a group called Sigma Theta Tau International. Mm -hmm. It's a nursing honor society that is by invite only. And the membership includes about 135,000 nurse leaders from around the world in about 90 different countries. And Sigma has a special consultative status with an arm of the United Nations called the Economic and Social Council, kind of the same arm that the World Health Organization is in. So it's a really unique opportunity for us to attend events in New York and really try to drive home the point that nurses not only should be at the table during these discussions, but that we often have solutions we've already created in our day-to-day lives Mm -hmm. that are applicable on some of these global plans and issues. So my uh, two-year term started in January of this year, so I have about another, another year to go. And it's just been so cool to walk in, you know, First of all, having security clearance to the UN is just kind of a surreal feeling. But, sure. then, but then you walk in and, you know, you're listening to all these really intelligent people and they're representing, you know, their countries and their regions and their their, their fields of, of study. And you get through these great presentations and then you raise your hand. You're like, is anyone going to talk about the fact that nurses have been dealing with this for hundreds of years sure. and are actually really good at innovating Mm-hmm. And really good at finding ways to make something work when there are no resources sure. or there's not enough staff or that kind of thing. So, you know, I had the opportunity and it's it's definitely nerve wracking, but they often say anyone with comments, questions, you know, and you raise your hand. And I got called on during a session for the World Health Organization when they were uh, unveiling their their new global action plan. And I was like, with all due respect, where are the nurses in this report? Sure. And it was like the room kind of, set up, tilted their head, turned around. They're like, yeah, good point. Right. You know, but it's one of those things like you don't often think about what's missing until someone points it out. And so that's one of the cool things we get to do is network and build these relationships and keep singing the, like the praises and successes of what nurses are doing around the world. And people are super receptive. I mean, nobody hates nurses, right? We're the number one trusted profession in the world. We're the largest group of healthcare workers in the world. And 
ultimately, we should be driving a lot of these changes at the global level. And people at the UN are really starting to notice because the WHO has now determined that next year, 2020, is going to be the year of the nurse and the yeah. midwife. And yep. we are excited to be at the UN leading that, celebrating all the stuff that we do. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it's, it's amazing how a simple question can change a trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that they're going to rewrite the report simply because I asked a question, but at the end of the day, someone's got to stand up for nurses. And, you know, we're nurses, I feel like, are super great at talking to each other, Mm -hmm. but we could do a little bit better of a job of talking to the people we work with and people who are kind of outside of our circles. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've done more of that in the last 20 to 30 years and it's made a huge difference yeah and i think you know at the university we've got the interprofessional education Mm -hmm. focus which i think is going to help in the future with everybody that goes through our programs being much more open to talking to the other practitioners that they have to deal with Mm -hmm. to take care of a patient so i think that's going to help break down some of the barriers also yeah and i remember you know pretty early in my time in the icu i remember one of the attending physicians who had i think it maybe new residents or new fellows with him and i remember him saying if your nurse comes up to you and says they think something is wrong stop what you're doing and go with them yeah like nurses now have so much respect and so much you know of a central place on the team people really do understand that we're very well trained we often see things going wrong before anyone else does and that our voice matters and so i'm you know we're translating that to the un as well absolutely that's fantastic so i also hear that you've been working with community partners in health as well as an organization about sex trafficking Can you tell us about all your projects and why they're important to you? Yeah, so Partners in Health is an organization um, focused on global health and health equity that's based in Boston. I'm involved locally here in Chicago on their board, really just trying to raise awareness. We raise a little bit of funds. We try to get people to understand that global health is local health and making sure that when people have needs, that those needs are being met. And kind of their mantra is, you know, staff, stuff, space, and systems doesn't matter if you have health insurance, if you show up to a hospital that doesn't have bandages, what was the point? Right. So looking at those four kind of pillars of healthcare around the world, uh, I think is really important because I do believe that healthcare is a human right. I do believe that people should be able to go and get good quality care anywhere that it's needed. And, you know, that also makes me love my telemedicine job a little bit, too, because <laughs> it, it plays into that. But so it's, it you know, it's a lot of fun to be involved at the local level, just getting getting more awareness out there and understanding that what happens, you know, in West Africa really does affect us because, you know, every day at O'Hare, there's over 100 planes that land from outside of this country. Mm -hmm. So we're never more than 36 hours away from the next pandemic, if you really want to think about that scary fact. Well, well, let's not right now. But But yes, I understand. It's it's super important because we are an interconnected world. Mm -hmm. It's not the 1950s or 60s where people didn't really travel unless you were doing it for business. So it is a very different world we have Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned um, the sex trafficking piece. So at ResU, we did a film series. And one of our first topics was human trafficking, as well as sex trafficking to make sure that nurses coming into the profession understand that we are often the last and sometimes, unfortunately, the only person Mm -hmm. that that patient will ever see. So it is on us to make sure that we pick up the subtle cues that we understand body language and terms and you know why does this 12 year old have a tattoo that doesn't make sense right 
don't ignore it dig mm-hmm. into it a little bit more that might be the last time that that person is seen you know by a healthcare provider or um, in some cases even alive so mm-hmm. it is a unfortunate scary and massive problem that not only this country is facing but we're also facing around the world as there are now more people on the move than ever before ever since world war ii that's that's astonishing it's crazy and Mm -hmm. it scares me because if you think about especially the children we're at risk of losing an entire generation of this planet because kids are not in school kids are on the run from whether it's natural disasters or man-made wars i mean this is very real so we need to equip nurses especially in a city like chicago to be aware that this exists here it's not a problem somewhere else it's a problem here And here are some things that you could look into Mm -hmm. if you have any suspicions and also some groups that might be able to give you some support if you if you're interacting with someone who is being trafficked. Wow. Uh, It's heavy, but that that is very heavy. And and, and you wouldn't think that it's in our backyard. It is. Unfortunately, Cook County, it's it's here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to mention one other thing about your connection to our It's Amazing to be Needed campaign. Yes. (laughs) You were actually one of our first uh, models in Mm -hmm. that campaign where we feature real students, alumni and faculty. I've unfortunately had to be part of this also. So I, I, I know some of this. But um, how how did it feel mm-hmm. to have your face on the billboards and on the bus tails? And what kind of reactions did you get from friends, family and strangers? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun to be a part of the campaign. And, you know, it's a very cool thing to to be able to do it. It's a kind of a weird feeling, though. It when is, you, yeah. <laughs> you first see yourself and you're like, man. All right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my social media was blowing up because people every time like, oh, I saw you on the highway or I saw you on this bus. And yep. I'm, I'm like, OK, OK, yep. So at first it was, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. And I was glad to see that Res U was getting so much uh, buzz and publicity about it. And then it got weird when, you know, I'm working in the emergency room and my patients and families are like, I feel like I've seen you before. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'll put a mask on. You know, I'm like, nope, not me. <laughs> no, I wasn't that guy on yeah. the bus shelter just outside the hospital. <laughs> no, it's funny. One night we were leaving a concert at the United Center and the line of buses, mm-hmm. I'm on the back of one of them. And so I go stand next to it, get a, my picture. Sure. And I'm laughing with all my friends. And this woman walks by and she goes, is that your brother? Oh, no. And I just laughed. I'm like, yeah. Yep, my, <laughs> He's my twin. My twin brother. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, I mean, it's it, it's a weird sensation because it, mm-hmm. I don't know, like you're just, you feel a little exposed and kind of out there, but yeah. it's a really cool thing. And I think if it can lend some voice to not only more people coming into nursing, but more men, especially, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today, Art. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Where do you go? Are you looking for Stay tuned to the ResU podcast here on WGN Plus for more episodes with ResU thought leaders and partners that will introduce unique ideas and ways to help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. ResU, it's amazing to be needed.